You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Let's join one another in the Bible, as is our custom. Uh, Several weeks ago, we went through kind of a crash course of the book of Acts, and I want to invite you there now. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. Now, if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone, as I told you, there's a paperback Bible in the chair in front of you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Uh, whether, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time that you open the Bible, Jesus tells us that in this is a treasure that's presentable and accessible for those who this is the first time opening the Bible or the thousandth time. And we believe that something miraculous happens when you open the Bible by the power of God's Spirit. The Bible actually starts to open you. And as we begin to expound, or the word we use is exposit, we expose what's in the Bible, the power of God's Spirit actually exposes that which is in us and applies grace deeply to it. So we're in Acts chapter 11, that's the fifth book in the New Testament, after the first four books, which are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, writing one of those Gospels, literally good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, actually wrote a two-volume series. And the first is the Gospel of Luke, and the second in that series is the Acts of the Apostles. That's when the book we're in now, literally actions. Or, well, if you find yourself reading the story of Jesus and going like, well, what do we do now? That's what Luke wrote. And he wrote this eyewitness account of all that happened. And the story of Acts is a gospel movement that starts in Jerusalem, and they're commanded to be witnesses of the resurrection to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you're rereading yourself, you know, kind of uh, into this text 2,000 years later, that uttermost parts of the earth, that's us, right? The, we're the people that, uh, the, the original recipients uh, and eyewitnesses of Jesus' testimony, or of Jesus' resurrection, and passing on that testimony, we're the people they'd never seen or heard about, then speaking languages they'd never heard of in South Dakota, United States of America, right? And so we're the uttermost parts of the earth. Now that gospel movement takes a, sh- a turn and a shift right in the middle in chapters 11, 12, and 13. And so I'm going to read to you, beginning in verse 19 of, of chapter 11, to the end of the chapter, Luke starts to tell us more about the Apostle James and the Apostle Peter, and then he resumes the story of the turning point in Antioch at the beginning of chapter 13. So I'm going to read from 19 to the end of chapter 11, and the first three verses of chapter 13. So you get a picture of the turning point. Up to this point, and he'll tell us why, this gospel movement stayed pretty close to this ancient Near East, the eastern side of the Mediterranean, where, where Jerusalem, the, uh, uh, Judea, Samaria, these are the outskirts of, in this case, this, this part of the world. But as it turns, it leaves what we would call the people that are God-fearers to people that were godless, people like you and me, people like you and me at the ends of the earth, not knowing that there was hope in the resurrection of Jesus. So, I'm going to read beginning in verse 19 and see if you can hear the turning point as we look and we're going to, we're going to drill down deep into this method and this thing that this encourager does. Now, up to this point, as we flew through the gospel of Acts a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the, the, the message of the book of Acts is around a story, a story that you'll remember Pastor Chris Hemmelman came uh, two weeks ago and reminded us it's our origin story, that God has come to be with us and for us and make a people for himself, to glorify himself, to be present with forever and ever. In the gospel, or excuse me, the, the second, second installment of Luke's gospel, this act, is also the people of God that is the church. And then this otherworldly purpose or calling or mission that we now have because of Christ, we're invited into what he is doing, right? Our God and Father is unlike us, right? There's a, 
You know, if, if you're a parent of small children, uh, I was reminded recently, like, it's like inviting a, a, two-year-old, a two-year-old into the kitchen, right? Two-year-old has no business being in the kitchen. It will only make a mess. And yet our God and Father is so generous, he invites us into his mission and purpose in the world. Because the worst that a two-year-old can do in a kitchen is cause some damage, and our God and Father can clean up anything. And so we're invited into this purpose, and you'll see the turning point of this purpose. And I want to look in, if, if the gospel and the community and the mission, this, this picture of an otherworldly story, an otherworldly people with an otherworldly purpose, is kind of this threefold dynamic of the, of the church, then what I want to look at here is maybe like the glue. The, well, what do you do? How does it function? And I think we see a, a picture of this, at least one of them, in this turning point in Acts. So beginning of verse 19, here we go. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, skip chapter 12 with me, where Luke tells us about another account of James and Peter, and see where we resume in chapter 13 in the verse 3 verses back into Antioch. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This otherworldly story, supernatural story, that God has come to be with us in Jesus, to live the perfect life that we could not live, dying a death that we deserve, but resurrected victorious as vindication that God is merciful and is here to redeem us. This otherworldly awakening that creates a people set apart, that is the church. And this otherworldly movement 
that now sets those people called by God to a purpose, a mission, joining in on the good work, the redemptive purpose of God in the world. If these are the components, you might be asking yourself then, how do we do it? What do we do next? And I want to contend for you at this turning point in the book of Acts. I see turning point because from here on out, if you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, Antioch you might think of as the corner, the turning point. That is that if you If you're a seafarer, you would cross the Mediterranean and make it to the center of the known world and the furthest, uttermost parts of the known world, which was the Roman Empire at that time. But if you weren't going to take a boat, then you would go around the Mediterranean and pass through places like Antioch. The beauty of this story is we don't even know who planted this church in Antioch, and yet it becomes one of the most powerful sending churches. And the turning point in the gospel, or excuse me, in the story of Acts here that Luke tells us is that while at first, this gospel movement was in Jerusalem, Judea, this, just right there, and, and Samaria, people who knew the scripture, but maybe just interpreted it differently than the Jews at that time. But if you'll notice, it only went, did you hear that? To Jews only in verse 19. Until something happened at Antioch, and everything changes. And so if you read for the rest of the book of Acts, I encourage you to do that. You can read the entire thing um, in, in under an hour. And, uh, and, and as, as, you, as you read through the book of Acts, and you find yourself, oh, you skim, you go pretty quick. Um, but if, if you find yourself in, in, in the rest of the book, the story starts to follow the apostle Paul and Barnabas as they were sent out until they, they go, they plant churches, they come back, they go, they plant churches until finally the end of the story, they're in Rome, which as far as Luke is concerned, is the known world. No one knew anything of the world beyond that. And this gospel movement is alive and well. The turning point is visible today. I try to point, often we can think like when we think about sending missionaries out, we can think like that we're sending someone to some place as opposed to we're the remnant and result of missionaries being sent to us. Mind you, the people who wrote and read this first text here did not speak English and they had never seen people of the complexion of South Dakota. And it is all a testament that this gospel movement has crossed continents, oceans, languages, cultures, and ethnicities to where you and I are a part of it today. And now we join in with saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world and across history in this redemptive story that God is writing. But how does it work? How does it happen? We find here that it's as though Barnabas comes and does something and it pours gas on everything. My goal and my prayer and my hope is that as we, we kind of lead through this next season in the life of our church, changing culture to, to welcome more people to hear about Jesus, that the whole goal would be that more people come to a knowledge of the hope that we have in Jesus. Just like this. My goal, even as, you, as you've gotten to hear Pastor Chris and Pastor Noel, if you were here the last couple of weeks, is that every single person connected to Connection Church would become an evangelist, that is, a proclaimer of the gospel, that we would be a team of missionaries and a missionary team in our city. That is, that that our city is full of people living without hope, and our city cannot afford for you and I to keep this redemptive story a secret. But notice, Barnabas didn't come as an evangelist, but what happened? Whatever he came and did poured gas on this church And then all of a sudden, that church became an evangelistic church. Did you hear that? After verse 23, he came, he saw God's grace. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Spirit and faith. And then what happened as a result? 
many people started to come to hear the gospel. Many, it, I love how it, it describes that. There are lots of language, there's lots of language for what it means to become a Christian, but I love the language here. It says they were added to the Lord. They were united with Jesus himself. And so Barnabas didn't come as an evangelist, but whatever he came to do fired up everything. It turned everything up. And he comes, and we see the word that's described there, and we're going to spend all of our time kind of digging into this word. It says, he came, and seeing God's grace at work, he exhorted them. Now that word, I want to teach you a little bit. I don't care if you ever remember this again, but I'm going to, I'm going to nerd out on this word so that you'll begin to join me in this. That word is parakaleo. It has two parts, and you'll be familiar with most of them, because the, as the word was Latinized and then Anglicized, the word para is still visible for us today. It's an intimate word. It's a connected word. And it's all in that word, exhort. He came in and he para kaleo. Para, it means alongside. It means together with. You know this. That's what a paramedic is, right? A paralegal. A paramedic. Not necessarily the hospital itself, but a paramedic who comes near and draws close, identifies with you. And then the word kaleo is a tension there. It's a strong word. It's a fierce word. It means to command or to call. And yet, it seems here that Barnabas comes and does this thing, a word that shows up for the rest of the New Testament in different ways, a theme that I will argue is the glue. It's the what do we do now in which the otherworldly purpose and story, the otherworldly people, and the otherworldly mission we now have are held together. It's the secret sauce. That's not the right word because I'm going to tell you about it. It's not a secret. It's the mode or the means. It's the method. It's even the artistry. It's the what we do now. And it's this tension between para, being close and near, and kaleo, to command and call. Intimate and gentle command. One commentator puts it this way, it's this sympathetic insistence on the truth. And whatever Barnabas did, it says he came and exhorted them, this parakaleo ministry fueled everything else that was going on. It was this spirit-inspired, powerful, multiplying, cata uh, uh, catalytic movement that Barnabas does, and I want to dig into it for the rest of our time. Otherworldly, awakening encouragement. I didn't know how to define that because whenever you look up this word and you see it the rest of the New Testament, you'll see, and I'll give you some instances of it, it's never translated the same. And whenever you see one word translated in different ways, it means that the lexical range of that word is too big for whatever language you're trying to translate it into, right? You can think of other words that it doesn't quite fit or doesn't quite work when you translate them, right? This is one of those words. And so this otherworldly awakening encouragement, that's one of the words you'll hear, uh, uh, you, you'll hear to translate this word exhort. My, my favorite is, uh, and I, I, the word out of the King James is the word beseech. I think we should bring that back. If I could get just a few, if you want to make beseech a common, it's, right? There's, there's, there's no, but even then you're kind of like, I don't say that because this, it's exhort. It means to, to invite or to include and yet, none of those quite carry what really is said here. But let's call it an otherworldly awakening. That is, there's something that catches fire here. This movement of the gospel starts to multiply and grow. This is the kind of awakening movement I want to be a part of 
That kind of otherworldly awakening encouragement gives life to everything in the church. And Barnabas comes and does this otherworldly awakening, life-giving, renewing, reviving ministry of encouragement or exhortation, and it changes everything. Now, this concept, this tension, is not new for us. It's beautiful and pictured in the very character of God. It reflects the character of God. But in our own sinfulness, we don't reflect it as well. You see the tension between drawing near, right? This picture of intimacy, of embrace, of including and hugging, right? You get this idea of this para coming alongside, this friendliness. For us, because of sin, is at odds with the other, which is to call, to command, to direct to tell someone what to do, to pull and push someone in a particular direction. And yet, this is the very picture of the character of God. You can see this in John chapter 1 when we're introduced by the Apostle John to what Jesus is like. It says that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, speaking of Jesus as the, the ineffable expression of God's redemptive purpose, taking on flesh amongst us. Glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You see that tension, but not in the character of God. You see, God in His perfection is fully just, fully righteous, fully holy, fully wrathful against sin, because in His perfection He cannot stand the presence of wickedness. And yet He is fully merciful, fully kind, fully patient, fully gracious. Because of sin, we struggle. If we're on a good day, we're just like a mix of half and half. But the rest of the days, we tend to err one way or the other. But he says this so that we will see the mysterious character and nature of God fully upon in flesh present with us. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is the one whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, there it is again, come through Jesus Christ. Jesus who comes to be God in the flesh, in our presence, with us, tempted as we were, and yet, on the other hand, nothing like us, calling us out of sin, calling us, leading us, pushing, pulling us out of our sinful nature. Do you see it? You can begin to see the mystery of the gospel visible here, that God has come to be in the flesh with us, like us, and yet not, with us, to sympathize with us, and yet to do something for us, to call us into and out of things that we could not enter or exit ourselves. You see this elsewhere when the Apostle Paul is encouraging the church at Ephesus. He says that he's given these gifts to the church. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, all visible in the life of a healthy church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or think adulthood to the measure of the stature of the very fullness of Christ. You hear that? God has given us gifts, accepting us, adopting us into his family, and yet the purpose is that we would become something else. The way we talk about it in our church is this, is that God loves you just like you are where you are. 
But God loves you too much to leave you like you are where you are. Because after all, real love, genuine love, genuine grace always wants what's better for the person. The cheap counterfeit is flattery. It's that you use someone to get something. On the other hand, to genuinely call someone to something that is better is a genuine act of love. To want what's best for a person. And these gifts are all part of God's plan to call us out of ourselves and to look more and more like Jesus into the fullness of Jesus, verse 14, so that we may no longer be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, now here, here's the tension. Here's, here's how this works. Here's how God does that. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So remember, the Apostle John says that Jesus comes as the full embodiment of God's perfect grace and God's perfect truth, not some mix of one and the other. And the Apostle Paul says that the way that the church will begin to act in light of Christ is the operation of both truth and love. Now again, you'll feel that tension, won't you? You'll feel that tension, this this kind of powerful tension because of sin that, that, that we will always err on one side or the other, right? And so maybe in this room, maybe on, on one end of the spectrum, maybe you're, the, you're on the para side, right? The along side. Maybe like, like, like Barnabas in this case, in some sense, you're well-loved. People find you to be a, comfort, a comforter, right? The word Barnabas literally means son of consolation, son of comfort, son of encouragement, Maybe that's you. Maybe you're good at making friends. But you know that when that's used selfishly in a way that exalts yourself and not others, you start to condone and become permissive, terrified to confront, afraid to say that something might be evil or wrong, afraid of being rejected. Maybe on the other end, maybe you're more like me and maybe you, you gravitate towards calling, right? Commanding, exhorting, pushing and pulling. But when that's expressed selfishly in a way that exalts ourself, what? It's unloving. It's ungracious. It's used to push people away, not to get closer. You get the idea? And the Apostle Paul says this little mysterious ingredient, this thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in this parakaleo ministry of Barnabas fuels the life of the church. It fuels it. It's the artistry. It's the, I keep saying secret, but it's not. It's like the magic ingredient, even though we don't believe in magic, right? Like it's, think of it as, this is an ineffable reality that every single vibrant church experiences, even if they can't put their finger on it. And Barnabas comes to be near para alongside with, and yet to call them to something else. This is the character of God on display. This is what it is. This is the how we do it. We are engaged in this kind of ministry together. Constantly drawing near to those who need to be called out of sin. Constantly calling, commanding, exhorting in light of the gospel those whom we love. And these are all part of what God is doing in the life of the church. After all, a rebuke, a call, 
the kaleo in that, that ultimately aims to hurt or to retaliate or to exact vengeance, that kind of criticism is not love at all and often is used to exclude. On the other hand, the kind of love that ultimately is for our own benefit, that makes us feel good about ourselves, is not love at all. It doesn't actually make that person better. It doesn't actually care about what is best and good and godly in that person. And so ask yourself this. Does your criticism love and draw near to the people you criticize? Because you'll know this, it's easy to criticize people from a distance. In fact, that's the safest, easiest, right, most social media endorsed way to criticize, right, from the bravery of our own keyboards. What about your love? Does your love and inclusion flatter the person? Is it ultimately including out of fear of being rejected? Does your love and inclusion and compassion for people, is it mostly about you? Does it ever get to speak into what is best and good for the other person? Do you feel the tension? This is what sin does, because either way, if we err on one side or the other, it's more about you and not about the Holy Spirit's work. After all, this is the work of the Spirit. This is the magic ingredient. This is what fuels fire on the evangelistic and compassionate ministry of the church from there on out. This is the miraculous otherworldly ingredient. And we're meant to even begin to consider that if we're supposed to be a part of this, which I contend to you that we are, then even in that moment, it's only the work of the Holy Spirit that allows it to work. So for example, Sometimes when you criticize or when you correct, it's easy to think that we're doing it because we're smart, right? Like, obviously, don't you see this thing? Rather than to see it as something that the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. And so do you wield criticism with gentleness because the Holy Spirit is at work and this parakaleo ministry through you? Or do you wield that kind of criticism so that you'll be right? Also, there's ways to love. Some of you might even think of yourself, I'm a very loving and gentle person. And notice, that isn't what we're talking about here. There are ways of loving that are not actually about love, but actually about you. And the same way I would offer you to consider the converse. Is it possible that you are loving not because you're a nice person, but because the Holy Spirit is working in and through you to welcome, to come alongside not because of you, but because of the work of the Spirit. That's what the explanation we're given here for what Barnabas did. This idea doesn't fit into English, and yet it is the ingredient. It's the glue. It's the, uh, I, I love the, the French phrase. I don't speak French, but there's a phrase, je ne sais quoi. It literally means, I don't know what. <laughs> and it's just a really fancy, snooty way to say, I don't know, right? Isn't that, isn't that great? Like, I'm stupid, but I sound smart, right? I can't think of a better phrase to describe what we're seeing here. It's like, I don't know what Barnabas was doing. He was exhorting. There was some sort of tension between being near these people and yet calling them to something else that poured gas on this gospel movement in the life of this church. So that's what it is. But what about its effects? How can you tell that it's at work? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the dynamic picture, the vital dynamic church, right? This, 
this awakened, this revived, this, uh, this powerful movement in the church. And in chapter 4, there were five that we saw word for word, right? Deep theological and doctrinal teaching. Now, remember, that's not deep teaching as though, like, there's a deep teacher, right? Not as though I or anyone else stands up here and is somehow a deep thinker or teacher. It's deep because it is the timeless message of God's redemptive purpose in the world. It's, it's deep because it's ancient and eternal, not because we are particularly smart or thoughtful or insightful. Intimate fellowship, compassionate concern, vibrant worship, intentional evangelism. Did you see some of those in the text that we read? Did you see it? In fact, later we saw in chapter 13, it was while they were worshiping and fasting, this vibrant worship and fasting, in that, it was in that context that the Holy Spirit moved and sent them out. And who did they send out in chapter 13? Paul and Barnabas. Think about that just for, for one moment. This church was so alive with the gospel that we call them gospel goodbyes when you send someone out to, to it, entrust them to the care of God, but it, it hurts. Think about that. The Holy Spirit was working so powerfully, they decided to get rid of their best preacher and their best encourager so that God's work would be done through them somewhere else. And remember, you see this for the rest of the book. They start planting churches, scattering churches all the way to where now, eventually, the descendants of these kind of, uh, I don't know, lineage of faith is Connection Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This is what is at work. This is this powerful thing that's visible. I'll point at least one of these out, especially, that's, that I think is, that is worth pointing out. And you see it in chapter 13. I think it's just really relevant for where we are. I, I think it's an invitation for us to be a revived and dynamic church in this particular way. Lists in the Bible can often just put you to sleep until you like, put the work in to figure out what they are. But read that list with me. It says there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. So these are like prominent leaders, prominent gifted people in the life of this church at Antioch. And he starts to list them, Barnabas. Now, now pay attention. Barnabas is from Cyprus. So he was raised in a Greek culture, functionally in that sense Greek. He's probably part of a, if you think about the Old Testament, he was a part of the, the Jewish diaspora that scattered the Jewish people across the world, right? And he was raised in Cyprus as a Greek. That also ends up probably being the story of Timothy and even John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. So you have this Greek brother of Jewish descent, kind of a, this multicultural uh, encourager, Barnabas, and then there's Simeon, who was called Niger. So now think of the people groups that represent Central and Western Africa. Think of the country of Niger or Nigeria. You get the idea? And after that, you see it's Lucius of Cyrene, okay? Now think modern-day Libya or Morocco, right? Think, think of Arab and Berber people groups, all right here. And then Manaean, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So this is some upper-crust brother who is like best friends with the elite, Right? And then you have the Apostle Paul, a guy from Tarsus. Think of modern-day Turkey. Kind of the, I don't know, think of him as the professor in this group. Already, do you see it? Do you see this miraculous work? I'm telling you, this, this is a powerful thing. One of the things that makes this amazing is that people don't know what to do with it. Because up to this point in the story, every single religion of the world was directly connected to ethnicity or nationality. When you saw the, the color of a brother or sister's skin, you already knew what they believed. And so, for example, did you hear what chapter 11 told us? They went and spoke to who? The Hellenists. That was the Greeks. That was the Greek-speaking people who were at that time polytheistic, pagans, who worshipped 
Roman or, or Greek gods or some connection uh, you know, between the two of them or even like worship to think of the, the, the gods of Caesar's household. They were Hellenists. And it was so crazy, did you hear that? They didn't know what to call them. And so at Antioch, when they saw this thing happening with these brothers and sisters from apparently Central or Western Africa, Northern Africa, the north side of the Mediterranean, the east side of the Mediterranean, even islands in the middle of the Mediterranean like Cyprus, right? They didn't know what to call it. And so at Antioch, did you catch that? They had to come up with a name of it for them. And they called them Christians. There's something going on here. There's something supernatural here. And my prayer, my hope, is that we would be a part of a movement like this, a vital, dynamic movement of the speaking of the truth and love. And friend, our culture is starving for it. We live in a culture at the moment where, and most of you are steeped in this, uh, in which kind of the, the searching for the good life is either done by kind of pushing people away and excluding them, or by some kind of inclusion that even embraces things that aren't even good for human flourishing. And we desperately need what's offered here. I mean, isn't that a beautiful picture in chapter 13? Look, isn't, I mean, it's, it's cool right now. It might not be cool later. But everyone's hungry for diversity and inclusion right now. They just don't know how to get it. And friend, we have the otherworldly ingredient. It is the... Jesus, who came in God, as God in the flesh with both truth and love. And our culture doesn't know how to do one while stomaching the other. My prayer is that we will be a part of this kind of movement where gas is thrown onto the fire here. So you see what it looks like and you, you see what it is. Before I talk about where we look for it and where we find it, I want to share with you even my own story of my own prayer for us in this moment for this kind of supernatural fuel, right? This supernatural glue, whatever, the, the I don't know what to call it. This thing, this parakaleo, this ministry of, of, of Barnabas here. There's two times when it became most powerfully uh, visible for me. One, uh, out of seminary, I became a pastor of an established church in a very rural community. And, uh, and I saw something here, or I saw something in that, in that rural community that has stuck with me. Because simultaneously, there was, uh, there was this powerful opportunity. In a small town, if you've ever lived in a small town, this will make sense to you. If it doesn't, you'll be like, what? You know, tell me more. I've never seen these small towns you, just, you described. There's lots. Just go visit. In that small town, everyone's life was so closely interwoven that there was the, I, I can't, I, I don't know how to describe it. There was just this amazing opportunity and potential for gospel transformation. Because everyone's lives were so closely intertwined through, through the school, through community events, through, I mean, everyone's lives, I mean, family, and they all had the same, right? If you live in a small town, everyone has the same last name, or at least a few different last names, right? And there's this powerful potential for the gospel to move, and because everyone is so closely intertwined, it could change everything. And yet, simultaneously, there is a sentiment in those small towns, or at least where I was, of that doesn't happen here. That kind of thing doesn't happen here. No, we we know how things, we know know how to survive. It's through this predictable, right? And and it never fails that the people who who are opposed to such uh, such a thing like that, they always benefit from some way maintaining the status quo. 
right? They, they always profit from or benefit from nothing changing. That's just maybe my own cynicism in observing, but it typically is the case. They're like, no, no, we don't want to change. It's like, that, that's kind of self-interested. But, but I saw there was just this powerful, powerful opportunity while at the same time this powerful, I don't know to describe it, it's like spiritual darkness. And I was leading in that, right? And I, my, my, uh, my great-grandparents actually helped found the town I was pastoring in, and yet I was still seen as an outsider, and I still see this as one of the most powerful. This is, this is Goliath. When I think about our church having an impact in our region, I want to see churches planted or revitalized or replanted in rural South and North Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, Nebraska, and it's Goliath. And it's going to take, it's going to take one of you or, or someone like Mark chapter 5, where Jesus heals the man and sends him home. It's going to take someone going back home in order to do this. Because even though my great-grandparents helped start this town, I was still seen as an outsider. And you know this, if you, were to, if you were like, hey, I want to be a part of this gospel movement in a small town. If you're not from there, if you ain't a homeboy or homegirl, like you speak that language, it's going to take 30 years before they think you're, like, before they accept you. And if you've got 30 years to spend, go ahead, right? But most of us don't, and so think of it this way, is like, this is a powerful movement, a powerful opportunity, and I remember feeling powerless. And I began to pray, pray, I began to study acts of revival, like, great renewals that have taken place in the centuries, starting here first with the book of Acts. And I began to long for it, and I hope you will too. Here's the second time I began longing for this kind of awakening, this otherworldly awakening. It was in 2020. In 2020, I was wrong. Now, I might be the only person you know who admits they were wrong in 2020, but let me tell you what I was wrong about. It is on the heels of great cultural and societal upheaval that almost every great spiritual awakening has happened. It's the nature of, and Jonathan Edwards speaks to this very helpfully uh, um, as he described the revival he was a part of in Northampton. And it was on the heels of great cultural upheaval that spiritual renewal happens, because that's what we're like. We, we become complacent, we become spoiled, we become entitled. We don't need God to work. I don't need Jesus to help me, right? I don't need anyone to parakaleo to come near and help me. I got it all figured out. Don't you know me? You're like, I don't, I have all that. You get the idea? And so it's a natural sinful tendency to need to call out and to experience renewal of, of God's presence. And that was for me, I thought, in 2020, because there was a moment there in the spring when, when, when everything, was, everything was on its head. There was a moment there, I don't know if you remember, we all felt together. None of us knew what was going to happen, and there was kind of a growing sense of, I don't know what this is, I don't know what it's like, because after all, this stuff comes only once in a generation. And I believe we are currently living in one of the greatest movements of cultural and societal upheaval. Now, I can say that because most people don't live through two, right? That's how, that's, it comes once in a generation, right? That's why there was, like, there was nobody from the, the Spanish flu pandemic to help us go like, okay, here, here's what's going to happen, guys. It was too long ago. And so there was this moment where everything was being turned on its head, and I started, I, I started just like, Lord, I think this is, is this it? Because some of the greatest movements of renewal, even on this continent, have come on the heels of great upheaval. For example, after the, great, uh, after, after the World War I and also especially World War II, there was a great, this massive awareness where everyone was like, oh wow, we're finite, we're frail, thousands of people are dying, we're uncertain of our future. And so you can see this in most of the architecture of the church buildings in America all look the same because they were all built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
And on the heels of great cultural upheaval and societal upheaval was a powerful act of God. Things, I mean, again, agree with it or disagree with it, but things were happening that were amazing. Think of like the, the Billy Graham Crusades, where thousands of people would pile into coliseums and stadiums looking for answers and looking and finding them in Jesus. And so in 2020, I was like, this is it. This, I mean, this is the upheaval. This is, like, God, you're going to do something. You're going to do something amazing. And I was wrong. Since then, we have become more divided and fragmented. At least, again, I can say this because you only live through one of these a lifetime. Some, maybe, you know, if you're older and you've lived through two, you'd be like, oh, actually, there was this one time. But like, I'm old enough to be able to say we are more fragmented, divided, scattered, confused, afraid, and angry than we ever have been. And you see this. Everyone, I mean, everyone you know, everyone you know is this close to freaking out. Like, just scratch the surface, even barely, and some of the most visceral, powerful, awful things come to the surface in you and me and everyone around us. Since 2020, we've seen this wild rise of barbarism, authoritarianism, widespread fear and uncertainty. Now, I could be right. Maybe I'm not wrong. Maybe it's just not over yet. Maybe the upheaval is going to last a little longer. But it's the second time I've found myself feeling powerless and going, God, if you don't do something supernatural and otherworldly, we're done. And this is what I'm inviting you into. This parakaleo ministry of drawing near to people and speaking the truth of God's redemptive purpose in Jesus in love. Getting close enough to be heard that we, as we call people out, and being brave enough to call the people we love, even for fear of being disapproved of. This is it. This is the ministry to which we've been called. This is the secret sauce. This is the magical, in this case, supernatural, otherworldly, dynamic thing that God does. I long for it, and I pray you do too. I long to be a church like right that just pours gas on what God's doing. People start inviting People are added to the Lord, right? Like, more people baptized. We get to hear stories of new life in Jesus. I'm just what I'm praying for, and I pray it comes through this powerful ministry that God's doing in our church of speaking the truth in love. Where do we get it? Well, there's two things, two places I think we get it, and they're right here in the middle where Barnabas is described. It says that he was a good man, verse 24. Now, that just means like he was well-liked, right? After all, he was an encouraging person. You know these people in your life, people, the Bar Barnabas, Barnabases, Barnabai, Barnab Barnabas, right? Some of you are that. You're encouraging, right? People like, man, I need to be uplifted. Some of you, like, I mean, you know who you are and you know those people around you. And so he was well-loved, but it says there were two reasons why. He was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. Let's look at the first one full of the Holy Spirit. It was an otherworldly, supernatural move because it was the Holy Spirit doing it. Now, elsewhere, we see that word, that parakaleo, used in the noun, for, noun form. Parakletos. Now, this should sound familiar. For those of us, we talk about the local churches, the ecclesia, that's the original word. And the word church, typically in its Latinized and, and Anglicized version, is a building, which the church is not. But instead, it's a people, ek, out, right? Like explode and klesos, called. The church is the people called out by God in the gospel. That's what the church is. And the spirit is referred to as the parakletos. 
Look here in John chapter 14. As Jesus is encouraging his disciples, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. That's that word. Remember that magical thing that Barnabas came to do that poured gas on the fire of the spiritual movement in that church? This is the noun form of it. This is how the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus. And he's saying, look, I'm leaving, but don't worry. It's actually to your benefit that I leave because there's a helper that's coming, a parakleta, someone who's with you and yet calling you to something else. And when and how will he be with us? Did you hear that? Be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So notice the first place we get this is the supernatural work of the spirit of God. This is only something that God can do. This isn't something you can muster up in yourself. In ourselves, we will always err on one side or the other. We will include in such a way that condones things that do not glorify God or lead to human, uh, human vitality and flourishing. Or on the other hand, we will exclude in such a way that doesn't rightly reflect the good character of God and his redemptive purpose in the world. That's what we do. We'll err on one side or the other. It's only when the Spirit intervenes that this takes place. And you've seen this happen regularly, haven't you? I get to experience it every single Sunday morning. Right? I, I show up on a Sunday morning and I'm thinking about something else. I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about what people think of me and I'm thinking about, right, I'm thinking about my own life. And then a handful of people stand up here and with, and like, right, and with musical instruments, they remind me. They parakletos, right? They draw me, they invite me near and then call me out. And they go, this is not about you. There's something else. There's an otherworldly story that invites you to be an otherworldly person with an otherworldly purpose. And I'm, I'm, I'm snapping, well, you're, yes, you're right, of course. Jesus, right? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. I think you might even say this is like any good thing in the life of our church is the evidence of the Holy Spirit doing this. If you've ever felt both loved and instructed, right? If you've like heard something difficult and yet known that it was from love, it's, again, it's not technique. It's not because someone mastered a personality trait. It is the work of God. It is the supernatural work of His Spirit. And it becomes evident in grace and growth. It pours, it pours gas on this fire. This is the helper. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. However, there's the second part here. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit, but he was also full of faith. Now, in the Bible, we've talked about this before. The Bible never talks about faith without talking about its object. We kind of have a way of talking about faith that it's like nebulous and can be just a trait. Like, oh, this is a person of great faith. Without ever talking about what they actually believe in. Well, the Bible never talks about it that way. So when he says that he was a man of the whole, full of the Holy Spirit and also a man of great faith, it implies the object. This was a man who had great faith in Jesus. This was a man who knew who Jesus was. And how did he get there? We actually see it in the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the rest of Jesus' encouragement. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, the helper, that's that word, that paraclete, the near, the near helper, right, the near encourager, the near commander, the, the compassionate insisting in truth, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world 
concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. But listen to what he tells us about the advocate. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, speaking of this helper, exhorter, encourager, beseecher, right? Talk about amongst yourselves. Start using that word. He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Did you hear that? When Jesus describes that helper, that comforter, the Spirit of God, as another advocate, another helper, he is using that word another to point to the first. Because after all, if the Holy Spirit is the other or second or another, then there must be one that came first. And this is how he's described in 1 John chapter 2. He says, my little children, right? You hear the, John's good at this, right? He's the power. I love you, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, now here's what I would say, when, not if, when someone sins, not if you sin. But again, remember, he's better at this. He's, he's doing the para. I'm not that good at this. But okay, Apostle John, if anyone does sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate, that's the same word. It's that same encourager, exhorter, beseecher. And so when Jesus says that he's going to go to the Father and leave the Holy Spirit to work, the Spirit that was at work in Barnabas, the work of that Spirit is to advocate for us by reminding us of our other advocate. The work of the Holy Spirit, the other advocate, works to glorify our first advocate, reminding us of him, reminding us of what he, is, what he has accomplished on our behalf. So that when and if we sin, we re we're reminded that there is one who has taken our place. Here are three possible responses for us. One, if you're in this room, maybe you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, maybe you're wondering what this whole thing is, talking about magics and secrets, I apologize for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really grateful that you're here, and I want to invite you to one of the possible responses. One, look to Jesus, our encourager, our advocate. I love how uh, Pastor Noel last week used the language that, that I think probably encompasses the best. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. I mean, do you hear the para and the kaleo in that? The, like, the drawing near friend, but also like sinner. Right? You, you, you feel the tension in that. It's like, you're a sinner. That's like, oh, that's, that stings. I hate that. But, but if, I, if I agree with that, then that means I'm a friend of Jesus? Okay, like, you, you, you get it? You get the supernatural, otherworldly nature of Jesus coming to be with us as the friend of sinners. Friend, look to Jesus, the encourager, the advocate. He is the friend of sinners. He is our advocate. That word advocate, that's like the word lawyer for us, right? You can hear the parakaleo in that. Because after all, if your life's on the line and someone's defending you, you want a good advocate. And in that sense, that person sitting next to you in the courtroom, your lawyer, is your advocate. They're, they're with you. They are with you. They're going to win or lose with you, right? But they're with you. But notice, they're not just with you to be friends. When your life is on the line, you don't want a buddy. 
You know, oh, I'm so glad you're here with me, right? You know what, right? You don't, you don't, you don't, oh, I hired this, you know, who's your lawyer? Who's going to represent you? My friend. Like, have they passed the bar? No, but I like, right? You, like, you don't want that, do you? You don't want just the para. You want the para kaleo. You want someone who not is only going to be with you, but contend for you. To stand and to make an argument and hear the argument, right? Because if one, for you, maybe the response is to look to Jesus, our advocate. Two, listen to the second advocate, the Holy Spirit, about our first advocate. And it sounds like this. When the Holy Spirit is at work in you, reminding you of our first advocate, it sounds like this. Why are you so afraid? Jesus has done everything that you might need. Why are you so afraid of failure? You have been given the perfect record of Jesus. Why are you in despair and so lonely? Jesus is with you and promised to never leave you. You get it? Do you hear the work of the second advocate reminding you of the work of the first? Friend, listen to here as we sing, as you, uh, in, in gospel communities and in every opportunity you get, be reminded, that's what it will sound like. The Holy Spirit reminding you, you have an advocate. You have one who not only sits next to you in the courtroom, you have one who has taken your very place. He not only advocates for you by sitting next to you, he has become you. And hear the words of Jesus, our advocate, say to the Father, I have paid for sin, therefore these people are free to go. Hear the word of our advocate Jesus say that this sin has been paid for. You cannot exact payment for sin twice, so therefore these people are free to go. Hear the Holy Spirit. Or three, go and be a friend to sinners. Be a friend to sinners. I think that's probably the best summary. What is Connection Church? Friend of sinners. People who are friends of sinners. Jesus, who's our friend, we're friends of sinners. That's what a gospel community is. That's what sharing the gospel, you hear the people added to the Lord. That's what sharing the gospel, being evangelists, living on mission. Isn't it just being friends with sinners? Being close enough to call them into the marvelous light that we've received in Jesus? You get it? So look to Jesus, friend, the encourager, the advocate who has taken our place for our sin and was resurrected victorious over it. Or friend, hear the second advocate as he reminds you of what Jesus has done that casts out fear I was reminded of this even uh, recently, someone who was facing death. And in facing death, they had some of the greatest confidence and courage. I think it was because of the second advocate, right? You have nothing to fear. Don't you know what Jesus has done for you? Or be a friend of sinners. That's all we are. That's all the church is. That's the gasoline that fuels and ignites the fire of this gospel movement. You can use me. You can throw me under the bus, right? You can be like... uh, Jonathan, you know, why are you part of Connection Church? Jonathan, he's a sinner, and he needs a friend, right? (laughs) And then join the club. I'll share it with you now, because after all, if if this otherworldly awakening encouragement that gives us life, that gives life to everything in the church, is something that Barnabas did, the Holy Spirit empowers, it's also because of this, that Jesus, our advocate, is the one who gives life to everything in the church. He is the one who has advocated for us. He is the one who exhorts us. He is the one who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let's thank God. Let's pray together that he is our advocate. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have accomplished on our behalf. 
Thank you for your mercy and grace towards us. Thank you that you have come in to not only be up there and out there, but to be with us and for us. Thank you that you lived the perfect life that we could not live, and you took the penalty that we could not bear in order to achieve the victory that we could not accomplish ourselves. So if there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians, maybe they're not sure, maybe they're uncertain, might today be the day they look to you, trust in you, hear the good news of how you have advocated for them, you have come to comfort and courage, you have come alongside, and yet you are calling them to new and glorious life. Maybe for some of us, we've just forgotten that. We're living in despair, and I pray that now they would hear the powerful reminder of the Holy Spirit. Our advocate has come, and he will never leave us. And then for the rest of us, Lord, help us to be just like Jesus, friends of sinners, alongside and yet calling us out into new and marvelous life. Thank you that you have come to be the friend of sinners. Thank you that it fuels the fire of gospel movement that has transcended language, ethnicity, time and space, continents and oceans to where we get the privilege of hearing this gospel even this morning. Thank you as a friend of sinners, you invite us into this ministry with you. Thank you, Jesus, for these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen.